The following is a conversation with David Zamorian. David Zamorian is an entrepreneur originally based from the Philadelphia area and is best known for his role as the founder and CEO of Detropel. He has also made appearances on the famous show Shark Tank and the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Today, he resides in Massachusetts and is focused on building up his company. Here is his story. So, David, did you ever see yourself working for someone else, or was entrepreneurship always the path that you wanted to go down? So, I always thought that I would work for myself. I just didn't know in what capacity and when. Mm-hmm. Um, since I was a, a little kid, I always loved business, but I loved the intersection of business and education. So, my entire life, because I had a, a, a very unique dichotomy where my, my dad, my parents were divorced, and my dad was very business focused, whereas my, my mom's side of the family was very much pushing education and thereby also pushing me to be an attorney my whole life. I thought I was going to be an attorney for, for up until, you know, maybe the first 15 years of of my life. Um, And at that point, after doing several internships, I learned one that if I was going to be an attorney, I had to do, I had to be an attorney for myself, like have my Mm -hmm. own practice. Um, And then further, I realized that I wasn't, I excelled much better and, and probably chose the better path of entrepreneurship. Got it. Interesting. So you were just, the, being a lawyer wasn't a vibe. You were just like, this sounds like a lot of, obviously entrepreneurship is a lot of work, but you just got the vibe that being a lawyer wasn't right. And you were like, I just should just do my own thing. No, I, I loved it. I, I, a lot, I loved a lot of the internships. I took classes like full-time law school classes while I was in high school at, at UPenn um, over a summer. Actually, I got credits for them. This is like when I was maybe an incoming junior. Back in the day. To, to high school. Yeah. It's, a little while ago. Um, and I, and so I thought I would love it. And I think I, I did love a lot of parts of it, but Mm I, I disliked, I particularly changed my mindset after doing a few internships. I did one, my first one was for a sole proprietor, which I loved. I loved the fact Mm -hmm. that this guy was a young, you know, I think he was like 31, 32 year old practitioner. He had had one experience at a larger firm and then started his own thing right away. And he just, he got to do whatever the hell he wanted, whenever he wanted with whatever startups he wanted. And he was really, he was really cool. This guy, Lee Schlamowitz, um, like American Jew and, uh, just was really, really cool, uh, cool guy. And I, I, I still use him for some minor stuff here and there. He's, he's great. Um, but under his like uh, purview, I, when I interned for him, I loved it and I fell in love with it and I thought this is what I was going to do. Um, but then my later internships, I did them at some mid-sized firms. I did it at some larger firms in Philly. And when I experienced essentially like the quintessential, especially prior to COVID, um, workplace environment of being an intro level intern. And I was a free intern too, usually for managing partners. So I got a great experience being directly in the in the field and like not having to be considered someone's bitch for a lack of better words. Sure. Um, because if you're a paid intern and especially in high school and college too, but especially in high school, you're like, you're the coffee goer, right? You, mm-hmm. like, you're the coffee runner. You got to go. Buy the coffee. Yeah. Whatever it is. Right. But I didn't have that experience. I got a, a pretty real experience and got to actually work and learn on several different cases and documents. And for me, I realized that, going into high stakes corporate law, which is what I thought I wanted to do, but just with my own practice mm-hmm. was actually a lot less sexy and glamorous than it seemed. And that it would end up being a lot less fun than what I would have wanted. It, you know, a lot more reading, a lot more writing, a lot more splitting the difference, negotiating style, which I can't stand. And mm-hmm. you know, just 
not real solution, not real solution providing um, environment. And, and that's not how I envisioned myself as an individual. And so as I matured, I kind of realized that I wanted to have that freedom of doing kind of whatever I wanted and, and mm-hmm. be able to provide solutions in the way that I thought was the best. Um, and so, yeah, I, I dropped the dream, crushed my mom. Um, but I, th- I think she, uh, she <laughs> accepts <laughs> rightfully. So what, what's gone on since. For sure. And it's great to hear. I think you also brought up a great point in a lot of times we can learn about something. So learning about the law can be really interesting because we learn about how different cases go and whatnot. Uh, but a lot of times, and I'm sure a lot of people can attest to this, and as you did as well, uh, once we actually get into the field and start doing, you know, learning about something and then doing it are actually two different things. So once you're in the field and you're like, this isn't for me, uh, it's great that you were able to come up with that conclusion for sure. Yeah. And I'm I'm a pretty stubborn individual usually with things like that. So I'm a very disciplined person. And so for me, if I if I believe that something is tough, I actually feel more inclined to stick with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very happy for whatever reason that that one time I didn't choose to stick with it and I didn't move forward with, with the law kind of pursuit um, because in, in, in another world, I absolutely would have. <laughs> yeah, for sure. On that, on that note, uh, there's a Russian saying kind of, I don't want to butcher it, but it's like, yeah. so for everyone that doesn't understand that, it's basically uh, everything that doesn't happen happens for the better. So uh, exactly. awesome, awesome to see that happen in your case. Um, but also, you know, you've been on this really awesome, incredible entrepreneurial journey, uh, but every one of our journey has our start. So what was your first <laughs> entrepreneurial venture or your first company? Oh, man, my first company is definitely different than my first entrepreneurial venture. Um, I did the quintessential like Northeast Russian <laughs> Jewish type of hustle, you know, buy, sell, flip stuff. <laughs> um, the first thing that I, I did as a kid, I, I was always entrepreneurial. So when I grew up as soon as my parents got divorced um my mom lived in the northeast and it was kind of like closer to a, a shittier area or at least now it's considered a shittier area philly and um you know i remember like my grandmother i lived with my grandparents for the first few years and i remember my grandmother um buying popsicles or freezing popsicles for me and then telling me to go hand them out in like the neighborhood in the apartment complex that we lived where there was a ton of kids mm-hmm. um and you know, I was supposed to give them out to my friends and so on and so forth, but I actually used to sell them. And so I just, I was always entrepreneurial as a, as a young kid. And that was probably because I, I always yearned for a sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. I saw my parents, both my parents for that matter, but in particular, my mom, um, really struggled during my first few years. I just, I remember living in a different environment and, and while my dad also had his own struggles and his own entrepreneurial journey, that was very difficult. Um, you know, it was different because I lived with my mom and I saw her working in retail of really long shifts and I, and I didn't live with her because of that, mm-hmm. I lived with my grandparents as a result. Um, whereas, you know, my dad had his own house and he was better off. And so at the time, I, I just realized that for me, I wanted freedom. I wanted mm-hmm. the opportunity to be able to kind of build my own path. And I was also, I was raised really well. Like I, I'm very appreciative despite the hardships that my family's had um, and, and the hardships that I had to endure as a result. Like my brothers have no idea. I have two younger brothers who have vastly different age gaps than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they grew up with a, with a silver spoon in comparison. And, and, I'm, and I'm just so happy that I didn't have that opportunity because it just, it made me who I am today. Um, but as a result, I think ultimately I was incredibly entrepreneurial from a young age. I wanted freedom desperately. 
And then when I got into about fifth or sixth grade is when I started my, my first business, um, which was just really flipping uh, fake beats and G-Shocks at the time, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is, you know, a, a few kids did that in, in our community. It's so, a typical for, sorry to interrupt, but for those that don't know, grow up, uh, me and David know each other from childhood and in our area, <laughs> the kind of the Northeast hustle, people would buy stuff, try to honestly, yeah. a lot like, a lot like what they do in the stock market. They try to buy something that advertise <laughs> it as more value than it is and sell it off. So Different environment, but same kind of vibe. Yeah, and so you know, I, it was a means to an end for me. It was it was a money making thing for me, um, and at the time, that's all I really wanted. And I started getting into investment culture really, really young because my dad was in the financial industry and, and real estate and stuff like that. So, I um, it's funny I would make money, and then because my parents were super strict, I, I didn't like really have a way to spend it because if I bought new stuff my mom would see it and she'd be like, where'd you buy this? Why'd you buy it? You know, so on and so forth. So I would avoid getting the questioning. And instead what I did is I took the money and I invested it. So like my dad would do hard money loans, for example, or whatever. And, and so I would participate in these investments. <laughs> and so it was, it was quite funny for me at the time, you know, <laughs> looking back at it, but I was, you know, trying to make it happen. And then my first real company experience was my freshman year of high school. So I, I, I was very fortunate that I, it was admitted both to the middle school and high school um, which is Julia Reynolds Masterman School in Philadelphia, which is the top school in the state, top seventh in the country. Um, and it's a public magnet school. So you have to test to get in. And again, I was just, I, I was fortunate enough to get in. But when I got into the high school in particular, because you had to reapply um, for the mm-hmm. high school, even if you were in the middle school previously, and it was incredibly, incredibly competitive out of the million kids in the school district, not everyone applied, but out of the tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands that applied, only a hundred were admitted per grade. So it was incredibly, mm-hmm. incredibly competitive. And what I noticed was when I got in, I looked around and I, up until this point, you know, I still thought that I was going to go into law. My parents, again, always pr- pr- um, pushed education. And I was always told that as a kid, I was going to have to do, I was going to have to go to Ivy League. Mm-hmm. And so I thought if, if when I got in, if all these hundred other 99 other peers of mine looked this good on paper and were these like so smart individuals, I thought they were all geniuses. I, I had imposter syndrome. I was like, I, I don't really belong here. I don't, I'm not sure why I'm here. Like I'm good. I'm smart. I, I, I get good grades. That's, that's not necessarily, and I try hard, but I'm not like, I wasn't necessarily just that naturally committed to being able to study for 10 hours straight. Like a lot of my peers did. I had other, you know, aspirations. And so I just thought, man, I, I, I don't belong here. How can I stand out, especially when I'm going to be applying for my universities and, and colleges and stuff like that? And so I ended up going outside of school to a youth entrepreneurship program, mm-hmm. pure coincidence that I got in as well. I was the only non-senior in the program. But in my freshman year, I got into this program that was held out of First Round Capital, which is uh, Philly's most experienced venture capital firm and probably top 10 in the U.S., um, huge firm founder, Josh Kaufman's like this crazy VC who's a former, he's the former founder of half.com, which sold to eBay for in 2004 or five for like $350 million. And he had a very nice exit as a result. Um, and he's, you know, an early investor in Google, Skype, pretty much every major, major tech company. Mm-hmm. And so I got this amazing, amazing mentorship on a weekly basis, two to three times a week by going to this program. And they had new mentors coming in every other week. And I just, I soaked it all up. I was the kid that took it the most serious. I was mm-hmm. the youngest, but I, I, I was relentless. I, I, I believed in the program. I believed in entrepreneurship. I fell in love with it. 
And I fell in love with solving problems. And to me, my first problem, you know, a really long answer to a pretty short question. My first problem as a freshman in high school was that I had a pair of Jordans that I got as a gift for getting into mastering for my grandparents, and I hated getting them dirty. So I wanted to come up with a film that could be peeled off whenever it got stained. But I didn't know anything about chemistry, so some of my early mentors recommended that I pivot the idea to a shoe cleaning company. And at first, I was really, really against it because I had pride. I didn't want to clean people's shoes. I thought it was pretty beneath me. Um, but, you know, I, I was a 14-year-old kid. Nothing should have been beneath me. And so I swallowed the pride, and I, and I took that idea. And what we ended up doing is we became a, a, a conditioning company for local university sports teams where we would take their shoes on a biweekly basis and clean them, repair them, condition them, give them back. And I ran that business as a freshman in high school for about six months before having an exit. Um, and at the peak of it, we were making 25K a month in revenue and I was alone in the business. Um, I was, I was just, it was literally just me in terms of actually operating <clears throat> and it was like 90 something percent margins. It was all, you know, just, it was all service-based business. So mm -hmm. there weren't, there weren't any real startup costs. And so that business went very well. And I got an opportunity, very fortunate to sell it, uh, six months in. And mm -hmm. it, it just made a lot of sense because I saw the vision for Detropel coming to life afterward. Got it. On that note, you know, you mentioned Detrapel, which is what you're mainly, mainly known for. So one, how did you make that transition? And two, where did you initially just get the idea for Detrapel? Yeah. So the initial idea was like this, you know, this film that could be peeled off. And since I pivoted the idea to the shoe cleaning company, we wanted to offer a conditioning service, which at the time was a competitor of Detrapel's, uh, which was a company called Ultra Everdry. They're no longer really in business. Um, and the reason is because I bought that product. It was $1,600 for a little core, super expensive. But most importantly, you have to buy a respirator mask and a, and a full body suit to apply it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand the concept as to why for the longest time. But six months into it, after selling my first business, I realized I, was, I just started asking naive questions and I looked into it and I realized I learned about floral chemistry or, mm -hmm. or PFAS chemicals. And that's when I realized that this chemistry was incredibly, incredibly carcinogenic, hence all the protective gear that you needed to wear to apply it. And afterward, I, I started researching nanotechnology, came across um, the lotus leaf effect, and really just started asking really, really naive questions and Googling the, the heck out of everything. <laughs> and eventually, that's how the initial idea, that summer after selling my first business, that Detrapel was born. Detrapel, the, the word, is it, or the, the name, comes from detrahera which is the greek word i literally just googled the translation for like repelling and then the pel is part of repel so i just i just combined Very it so it wasn't that creative mm -hmm. but but the idea was that we wanted to come up with a film and at the time since doing a thicker film and in, in part of my research doing a thicker film um had its own complications it, it made sense to do a nano-based coating that could be applied onto at that point fabrics that's what i was thinking about it for um and they could repel liquid-based substances. That has obviously transpired into something much larger today, but that is the initial start of it. Got it. Interesting. So starting this company, you know, after having your initial exit and thinking of a way to make, uh, you know, a safer, less carcinogenic solution, I'm sure you had a ton of challenges early on. Do you remember any of the significant ones yeah. that you had to deal with? And how were you able to kind of uh, get over those humps? And there are a ton. There's still challenges every day. <laughs> but um, the first five years were particularly difficult because the research that I was doing, um, again, thanks to the school that I went to, we had a phenomenal program where if you were 
admitted, which pretty much everyone was, you were allowed to take classes as a part-time undergraduate student for full-blown credits, like full-blown classes mm-hmm. with other undergrads at UPenn during the evenings. So oh, for three awesome. years, I took different classes and some of those classes in particular, I did a little bit of a, of a shadowing program in one of the summers um, from one of the leading researchers at the Singh Center for Nanotechnology at, at Penn. And that's where I came up with the initial idea for what was at the time a photocatalytic titanium, which for in layman's terms just means it's a, it's a sun or UV activated um, titanium dioxide molecule, which would react in a way that would get you this super hydrophobic or oleophobic effect. In other words, it would repel mm-hmm. liquids um, at a really high rate. And so that was the initial research that I, I did and I based on it based on some of the studies that I had at, at Penn and in high school. But we struggled significantly for years to scale it up out of the lab. Once I got the, the basic MVP, the, the initial routine figured out, that was great. And we could do that all day in one gallon batches or even half gallon batches in the lab left and right. But mm-hmm. as soon as we started trying to scale it beyond five gallons, it would consistently separate and break. And that became a significant challenge for nearly five years of the company's history. Um, so for the first five years, we struggled significantly in all of the work that we were doing were off of like lab based sample sizes, mm-hmm. which was difficult because we were we, we had to have you know customers or, or conversations with people that were looking for 275 gallon batches at a time, which is called the tote in my industry. You know, they were looking for 20 of those on a truck every week. So there was no way I was going to be able to do that out of the lab. And so I contracted outside labs and for five years nonstop, we just couldn't figure it out. No lab I hired. I hired like four different ones, um, you know, top nanotech research facilities out there. And I, we just couldn't figure it out. No one could. Um, not until we, we at one point brought everything in house and hired our own chemical staff mm-hmm. uh, and eventually my, my CTO who, who now uh, works here full time, obviously. Um, but, but there are so many challenges, and, and, but the first one that comes to mind is, you know, the first five years of the company wasn't a company. It was a complete fabrication of an idea and mm-hmm. trying to make it work. And we were so ahead of the time because 10 years ago, no one, no one, no one talked about PFAS. No one. Now it's the talk of everything because there's so much legislation that's out, that's, mm-hmm. that's coming out banning PFAS. And there's over, I think, uh, $13 billion worth of pending litigation against companies that use PFAS. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a massive problem today. But 10 years ago, when I started the company, no one cared. Got it. So you're able to hop on it early. And I think one of the things that you said brings to mind a quote by uh, David Ben-Gurion. That was in this one book that I read. Uh, he said that uh, if you can't find an expert that agrees with you, find another expert. Or Sorry, um, <laughs> not, that's not the exact quote. I remember the exact quote. If an expert says it can't be done, then find another expert. So I like that you kind of kept going to lab and you're like, no, you guys are going to figure this thing out. And then ultimately you bought someone in-house and were able to kind of get that done. So that's awesome yeah. to hear. Uh, speaking of earlier challenges, and you know, I know you had, you just mentioned you had trouble for the first five years really trying to get the basic formula to work. Other than kind of the core of essentially what was your company since without, without that stuff wouldn't have scaled. Did you ever have any other doubts regarding your ability to scale or just kind of grow as a company? Yeah, I mean, certainly along the way, we, I, I had plenty of doubts, you know, I had doubts in my I, who am, I, who am I kidding? Of course, we, you know, there were moments I doubted myself as a leader. There are moments I doubted myself as a, as a, as a proper CEO or a proper founder. I mean, we're an institutionalized company now. We've got significant venture capital behind us. I have corporate venture capital arms that have invested seven figures into the company. You know what I mean? Like we have 
multi-billion dollar organizations behind us now. And so there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there, right? Like, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very confident. I believe I, I belong in the room and I've proven that. But the reality is, is I'm a, I'm a now 20, I just turned 26, 26 year old founder CEO who's at the table with fortune 50 publicly traded companies trying to sell them, you know, the codings that we make, which are highly, highly technical to PhDs who've been doing this for 30 years and haven't found the solution. And so of course there were tons of times that we felt we were a little over our head, but, but we knew what we were doing and, and we were confident that we were the right solution in the market. And so, um, <laughs> there were plenty of challenges along the way and, and I can, I can point to many where I've had a lot of doubters. I've had, you know, a lot of people that were skeptical about the technology, but once they started looking at it themselves and, you know, we, we always invite customers over to visit our facility because we're, we're the way I, I believe in, I believe in hardcore entrepreneurship. What I mean by that is I believe there's a strong delineation between business and entrepreneurship and I, they're not the same in my opinion. I think what what we think of as every typical like Northeast Russian kid thinks about business. They have no clue what it means to be an entrepreneur. And it's so, so different. It couldn't be, it couldn't be more different. And so when you come into our facility, when we invite a customer or a prospect or you know, a supplier, whoever, when they come to see our facility, they see two things. They see one, a facility that is insanely vertically integrated for the size of company that we are. We're just at 20 people. We'll be at 24 by the end of the year. Um, and we'll probably double in size next year. But the idea is for the amount of work and for what we do as a company, because we have three brands underneath the corporate umbrella, mm -hmm. we are so, so lean. And then the second thing that they see is what we do today isn't just like, we don't buy like ready-made chemicals on the market and mix them and, and sell them. We synthesize our own chemistry. It, it's it's very high tech, and so sure you've got a 26 year old founder CEO who who's very you know young, energetic, built a, a phenomenal team around him. But when you actually come to see what we do, or you speak to our CTO who's got 40 years of experience in the industry, who's literally a, a world renowned researcher, you start to realize this isn't some you know college project, or this mm -hmm. isn't some startup that that has some research behind it and it really has no business talking to some of these types of organizations, we're a legit company. It's very different. <laughs> like we've, we've got real, real, um, you know, shareholders that we report to and, and, and there's just a lot that goes into it. So without divulging too much more and keeping this answer as succinct as possible, it, it's not what people think. Yeah, for sure. And once you have kind of venture backing, you have probably investors breathing, uh, well, we'll call them nice people, but they're, they want to see results. <laughs> we'll just, we'll put it that way. Yeah, it's a, you know we've been very fortunate. I mm -hmm. I raise capital in a super non traditional way. Um, we've been profitable in many years prior, so I never raised capital really. It, yeah, not really. I never really raised capital because we needed capital. We, mm -hmm. we raised capital because we saw growth opportunity and we wanted to maximize it and, and fuel the fire. And so I've been very fortunate that a lot of my investors, um, especially my Series A investors, which are all venture capital firms um are phenomenal partners and i couldn't ask for for better partners out of them got it it's great to hear uh, great investors making great partners uh, one of the things that you said earlier is kind of entrepreneurship when you're young especially being a little in over your head which i think is, is a little fair i mean to kind of start a company or do something you have to be a little rational uh, but one of the Absolutely. things that yeah uh, one of the things that you got to experience as an entrepreneur is kind of 
maybe every entrepreneur's dream is to, to go on Shark Tank. So can you speak a little bit about what that experience was like and you know, how are you able to kind of kill it on the show? Yeah, indeed, that was a, that was a dream of mine. Um, as a kid growing up with my dad, I, I would watch Shark Tank and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I once envisioned myself there. And I recall my, my dad, I remember when I told my dad one time that, you know, I'd love to be on Shark Tank one day and, and you know, credit to my parents. My parents never told me I couldn't do it. My parents told me if, if I thought about something, I could achieve it. It was all in my hands. Now, the downside of that or the flip side is that I never got any freaking help from anyone. So it was very <laughs> difficult. It was a brutal, brutal uh, road to get to where we are. But, um, you know, the, the, the credit is due where credit is due. And, and my parents never stifled my imagination. Um, so when I was 15, I, uh, or I guess I had just turned 16 when I had officially just incorporated Detropel and we had our first significant batch made out of the lab um, that worked. And this was February of 2014. I remember it vividly. I was sitting at First Run Capital and I watched a partner of, at FRC at, at First Round, um, Chris Fraley, give a talk for Forbes where he said, he pretty much gave a speech on how to get a hold of the 10 busiest people that you know. And it was a step-by-step -step guide on how to craft the perfect email. That's really what it was. Mm -hmm. This is before email was like completely inundated with spam, like it is now. Yeah. But back then this worked. And so I, I read or watched the video, read the article, took notes and took it super seriously. And I emailed him, the, the partner who didn't necessarily know who I was. Um, but you know, I was kind of involved the first round somewhat. And so I emailed him and he replied and I said, that's great. You know, I'd love to meet with him and so on and so forth. But then I also then emailed the managing director, Josh Koppelman, who had heard of me, but I have never, I've never spoken to him and, and, you know, things of that nature. And so I reached out to him and, and he went and bought a couple bottles and I was, you know, I was so impressed that I was getting these answers, uh, via email from these super busy CEOs who, you know, I looked up to and was like, oh my God, this is like the equivalence of. I won't say God, but you know, like, you know, like some that. idol that I have. Right. Yeah. And I was just shocked. I was getting answers. And so I learned how to data hunt around the same time and, and specifically email hunts, um, data mine and email hunts. And so I started email hunting for, for Mark Cuban's email and I happened to find it online, uh, which now everyone knows it's publicly available. You can find <laughs> his, one of his like five emails online. And so I found one of them at the time. And I drafted the same thing. I violated some of the rules because I ended up drafting an entire novel, which I shouldn't have done. But very entrepreneurial of you. Yeah, and I sent him an email, and and he replied. And in that reply, in my reply to his reply, I mentioned Shark Tank, and so he's actually the one that introduced me to the casting producers. Um, and I waited to apply about four years. They kept following up every year and asking if I was ready to apply. And I really wasn't for the first four years, and so. Um, you know, fast forward to 2017, the summer of 2017, it was a, an eventful summer, but I, I was part of an accelerator program and I thought to myself, you know, this is the year, why not? Let's go big or go home. Might as well give it a shot. Um, this was, you know, maybe, maybe eight months or six months after I had a, a huge epiphany in the company because there was a moment in time, my freshman year of college that I thought I was going to actually quit the business completely and, and get rid of it. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of times where you have thoughts yeah, like that, yeah. but six months later, I, I, I'm like, you know, applying for this and we got in and, and there was a whole, there's a whole story to it too, because at first they gave me a rejection email when they meant to give me an acceptance email. And I was one of the wrong companies that, that got the wrong email. And, uh, 
long story short, I was accepted. Um, and it's a crazy, crazy brutal process. I'm happy to go into a little bit more depth about it. Um, but super difficult, inundative, like crazy, over 200 page application between the two different um, things that you have to submit. And eventually, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, I, I got onto the show um, and I filmed in front of the Sharks, which was a, a, cr a crazy experience in and of itself. But I got an offer from four out of the five Sharks and I, and I took a deal with two of them. Okay, that's awesome. Another thing I wanted to ask about Shark Tank, you know, a lot of times we see snippets of an episode or kind of snippets of a pitch, which is like 10, 15 minutes. In reality, yeah. how long were you up there pitching to them? So I got one of the quicker deals in history. Mine was like 36 minutes or so. Oh. Um, the average pitch is 90 minutes long. Got it. That's insane. 36 minutes is even, you're like one of the quickest deals. I'm like 36. Well, I'm also thinking in TV context. So I'm sure for them, uh, 36 minutes isn't bad, but to see, to see uh, the whole pitch, I think would be really interesting. So awesome. Oh, that yeah, you're no. able to do that. <laughs> I'm glad it's not public. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they scale down like, you know, the, the best parts for TV, I suppose, but you know, it, it's a real thing. It's not, it's a TV show. Don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. it's not scripted. Like it's, it's legit. It's a real thing. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and I'm sure that, you know, at least Mark Cuban, and I think um, Michael Rubin was on the show too. I think when you're, yep. you're north of a billion dollar status, you're kind of just having fun at that point, <laughs> deciding what to do with your money. So also being able to get that experience and, you know, you're up to still a lot of really exciting stuff now. Uh, where do you see the company going in the next five, 10 years? Is this something that you want to, you know, run for the rest of your life? Maybe, you know, eventually get bought out and work for someone else or right now you're just kind of uh, enjoying the wave of uh, where you're going? Yeah, well, I think de facto, since I've raised money, there's, you know, I'm not staying here for the rest of my life. Um, the reality is, is I, I, I'm not a big generational, like, uh, wealth or generational business type of believer. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. It's just in my particular case, I want my kids to achieve their, their success on their own too. Mm -hmm. And so I never envisioned passing this down to my kids. The, the goal is eventually to either go public or sell the company. And that's been the objective since day one. Mm -hmm. So we, in the next five to 10 years, very well could have an acquisition. If we, if we went public, it'd probably be closer to the 10 year mark. But mm -hmm. if we decided to have a strategic acquire us or maybe a private equity fund acquire us, then, then that would probably be in that like three to seven year range. Um, and that that's possible. I mean, we've had PE knock on our door already. So this isn't necessarily something that is off the table. Um, but in the meantime, you know, the reality is what we're working on is, is massive. And so I'm more concerned about first solving the problems, making the impact that we want to make and, you know, the money and, and the acquisition and all those other components that'll come, you know, you, you first do good. You, you first build a strong business, a strong company, and then you worry about the acquisition um, and, and getting out of the company. So for right now, what I'm focused on is, is building what we need um, to make the biggest impact possible throughout you know, whatever industry that we choose to participate in. I think it's a great mindset to have. You just kind of worry about adding value and everything else will, uh, will take care of itself. It'll fall. But yeah. Do you ever yeah. think about, you know, say if you get acquired by us, you can acquire and, you know, hopefully they, they keep you on as you probably are the brains of the operation. The business isn't worth definitely as much without you. Uh, but say, for example, you have the option to just kind of exit this completely. Do you ever think about what life would look like, you know, after this company? What else you would take on? You would take some oh, time yeah. off. I'd be so bored two months later when I start something new. Um, I'm just, a, I'm a solutions guy. So, and, and I do a lot today. Like, you know, Detropel is by far the, my main focus and what I do, what I'm known for. But, you know, I've got other things on the side, not, not other startups. Or anything, but, you know, I do other things. And so um, the reality is, yeah, I, 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 I take a well-needed, 
break in the sense of like, I pursue some of my hobbies more aggressively. I've mm -hmm. got tons of hobbies, which I, I love to pursue when I'm free. The problem is that I'm rarely ever free. So I pursue some of those, but the reality is I would get bored within two months max. I guarantee it. And I'd have to start something else. And so I, I do know some of the things that I would start if, if that were to happen today. But the reality is that five years from now or whatever timeline it's going to be, the world's going to be a different place. <laughs> so, um, you know, we'll see if those ideas ever make relevance in the future. But yeah, for sure. We'll see when we get there. I think it's a fair answer, too. I think a lot of people are kind of a lot of people who are an entrepreneurial or who haven't taken that path think like, oh, I'll take that path and then I'll exit and then, you know, I'll have, I'll have a lifetime's worth of money and then just chill. But reality is, I think if people don't feel like they're adding value internally, they're going to be a little depressed. So like maybe yeah. take a month or two off. But more than that, I feel like people will just be like, OK, I need to I need to do something else with my life. or I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah, there's just not that. I mean, I think life is beautiful. There's there's just so much to do. Um, and while some of those things are personal hobbies, I find that especially in the event of, of having an exit and likely a successful one, um, the chances are I will be able to do those fun time hobbies that leave impact to me while pursuing something else that has greater impact as well. Got it. If say, for example, you know, I don't know if you're mentoring anyone, but say, you know, a young entrepreneur came up to you and they were, so that, it's awesome that kind of you mentor and definitely that rewarding experience. So you probably had this question asked to you on a little more of an intimate basis, but curious to hear, you know, typically what you would say, but say one of your kind of mentees or one of your entrepreneurs comes to you and, you know, they say they're going through a really, really tough patch in their company, be it, you know, all by the many issues an entrepreneur can have. How do you go about advising them to, to really get through that hump? It's tough. Um, you know, it depends on the it depends on the scenario. Every every situation is different. Every company is different, and every founder is different. Um, you know, the challenge is what people often forget is that a lot of the challenges that we have as founders or as entrepreneurs is you have the actual crux of the problem, whatever that may be. It could be like let's say you know you're you're having supplier issues or your supplier went bankrupt or it's going out of business or raise the price rose the price by by two x out of your control. Yeah, things that you know affect the business greatly, but you can't necessarily control. And the one thing that everyone always forgets is that there are significant emotions tied to this, to, to, to living the lifestyle that you have to live if you're running a company like I am, for example. Um, because it's not just you that's at stake. You've got people that rely on you, staff, friends, family, whatever, that are li literally their livelihood depends on you, but also everything that you've built is identified as part of this company. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of emotions that are baked into this. So the first thing that generally happens is if someone is experiencing an issue, the first thing that you want to do is really first understand what, what can you control? And normally, you know, the common denominator is you can always control yourself and, and how you're going to react in your emotions. And so the yep. first thing that we do is we focus on something like that. And my mentors do the same thing with me too. I, I just had one of my longest mentors. I, I have a bi-weekly call with five different people who are five different mentors of mine and, and I often rotate once I graduate from some some advice with them but it, this one in particular that I had even this morning my 8 a.m call on every other Friday is with a, a longtime Philly entrepreneur actually founder who sold a, a big portion of his company recently um, and super well off and just a phenomenal phenomenal mentor I've had him for like, I've known him for eight to nine years or so or eight years and I went back to him maybe a year and a half, two years ago, um, and we've been consistent every two weeks since. But you know, he does the same thing with me too. Like today, I, I work through three different, 
two of which were personal issues as opposed to like a professional one. Um, obviously quasi work related or, or company related, but, mm -hmm. but personal. And the first thing that we always talk about is how am I controlling it? What are my emotions? How do I approach the situation first? Because in order, in order to solve any problem, you got to go in with a clear mindset. And so for us, the, the number one thing that we do is first identify what, it, what do the emotions of the person who's first involved, what do those look like? And then we try to understand the, the, the flip side. Mm -hmm. And then we, we try to find a pragmatic approach that, you know, solves both, both ends of the, of the eye. Sure. That's fair. So essentially kind of high level control that you can control, uh, ideally your emotions, which is the toughest thing. Unfortunately, we're not machines and we can't operate at hundred percent efficiency, uh, yeah. but ultimately kind of realize that, you know, control what you can control and sometimes stuff happens and you just have to kind of roll the punches and move forward. Exactly. I, I would just add that when I say emotions, I don't necessarily mean like the basics of, oh, I'm, I'm feeling sad or this makes me upset yeah. or this is very difficult and I'm overwhelmed and anxious. Much more complex. What I mean, yeah. And what I mean, what I mean by it is, is that how are you going to rationalize the other person's thinking and therefore your response as a result? Got so it. it's a, a lot more complex. So dealing with the complexities for sure. Uh, if you could go back kind of uh, to 10 year old David and give him advice, what would it be? Yeah. To start earlier. <laughs> 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 yeah. If I started maybe 10 years ago, or sorry, if I, if I was where I'm at now, 10 years ago, who knows what have been the case? Um, no, I, I'm partially being facetious, but I think, I think realistically for me, when I was a kid, I, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't change this, but I yearned for a lot of justification and a lot of gratification through mm -hmm. external means. Um, you know, I had a lot of pressure put onto me from my family from day one, because I was literally like literally the moment I was freaking born and my parents still tell this story to this freaking day and annoys me. Our family friend who was our doctor came into the room and said, this person's going to be someone. And my parents have held me to that goddamn standard since I was born. And I'm so appreciative for it. But, mm -hmm. but the reality is that a normal person probably wouldn't be able to handle the amount, amount of pressure. I'm glad that I went through it. But at 10 years old, I think the one thing that I would have said is I would have tried to learn to get that satisfaction and, and fill the void that I had about not feeling good enough or feeling as if I wasn't meeting my parents' expectations or the expectations that I put onto myself, thanks to my upbringing, I would have tried filling those voids internally more than I did externally. Got it. And do you think that would have, might have helped you manage kind of whatever emotional difficulties you had moving forward, kind of getting that done at a younger age? Maybe, I, I, you know, I have to say probably. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I would assume so. I would Got assume it. so because I would have been even more, you know, it would be more emotionally intelligent. Yep. But no, I think I think it's a really tough thing for any you know kid to go through. Mm -hmm. And to some degrees, I'm you know I'm still a kid, you know, like in many ways. And so at the end of the day, growing up in that setting that I did had its many benefits. Incredible, incredible discipline that I got out of that, and that's great. And I would never change that for a second. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think I, I, I lost a lot of relationships early on in life mm -hmm. because of this need for this external validation elsewhere. That would have been through my education, through my work or through my athletics, whatever it may have been. I was focused on those things sometimes more than, than others. 
And so that definitely affected some things. But then again, you know, I'm not, I don't regret anything at all because I, I wouldn't be who I am today. And when you're a kid, the, 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 the great thing that you could do is you can look back and say, I was a kid. Sorry. Can we start fresh when now you're 27, 26 years old? So yep. life happens and that kind of, we live and we learn. And if, if we look back and we, we see things we acted or did that, we can always be like, you know, I could have done this or that better, but I'm a little older. So hopefully I can, uh, can act better. So it can definitely uh, resonate with you on that point. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone in history, dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> um, can I answer both a dead and alive? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you can answer ten people if you want. Any? <laughs> it's, there answer. are a lot. There are a lot. Um, it's going to be hard to to find just one. I'd I'd probably have to say, if dead. You know, that's a tough one. I. I there's so many that I could pick. I, I'm not sure who I would want to go after. You're like, I don't want to disrespect uh, any dead people here by picking one. Yeah, exactly, right? Let me come back to the dead one because now I'm going to try to find one that's alive. But to be honest, I'd, I'd probably I'd probably go for the cliche answer of, of Jeff Bezos, but probably for a non-cliche reason. Mm -hmm. um, the simple reason behind it is, is I just, I love, I'm fascinated by how people think. So yeah. I would love to learn what does what does his mindset look like at his stage now and what his stage was previously and, and how that yeah. has changed. Um, that's like one of the one of the few people I'd love to. The other people are are a lot less notorious than that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that that's probably where I would start. As for that, I'd, I'd have to get back to that. No that worries. A, a long list. Can't can't go wrong <laughs> with Jeff Bezos. Uh, do you have a favorite book that you've read recently that you think a lot of people should look into? There are a lot of good books. Um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss is great if you're into negotiation and, and just trying to be more emotionally intelligent um, as it relates to negotiating, especially. So that's a phenomenal book. Um, some of the classics like How to Win Friends and Influence of People by Dale Carnegie is really great. Um, and then a, 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 a book that changed my thinking as a founder, even though I, I would have identified as a founder that did do those things, was um oh thank you uh it's about getting the right people on the bus oh my god it's a classic hold on definitely my audible oh no worries i'll pull it up it's a good book people should read it and it's a classic that everyone mm -hmm. should know uh good to great by jim collins didn't got it good to great okay and then if it's not business related the best book i think i personally have ever read um which I think truthfully changed my life, even though I was, in my opinion, very, um, very disciplined and motivated already, was David Goggins' first book, Can't Hurt Me. Can't Hurt Me, and it's definitely on the list. So I think uh, you can't go wrong with those two. On this entrepreneurial journey that you've had and kind of that's going to only keep going and take you on a lot of these loops and uh, highs and downs that, you know, for sure in the future, for everything that's happened so far, what would you say that you're the most grateful for in this whole journey? My parents and my upbringing. Got it. Definitely shaped you the most into what you are today. Yeah, hundred percent. Got it. What would you say brings you the most happiness in life? Um, you know, probably the most happiest I've ever felt was when I felt like true freedom to mm -hmm. be able to walk out and do what I want with the people that I want. And so, generally, what that usually means for me is we've made 
significant impact here at, at, at the company level where I can then go and enjoy the fruits of those lab of that labor in the sense of like enjoying time with my with my loved ones and particularly like I'm married so my wife um, my family my brothers um, and then my closest friends too who are all we're all entrepreneurs so um, you know I think for me it's it, it all comes back to to the freedom to operate kind of do as I see fit, how I see fit, when I see fit. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's one of the most empowering feelings in the world. To be free. Yeah. Relatively <laughs> within reason, but for sure. Can yeah, I, for sure. <laughs> and that. Uh, on that note, David, you know, you've had this incredible journey, you know, you've been through the ups, the downs, and, you know, we'll see where that journey takes you. Uh, are there any final words that you want to share, whether it's business advice, relationship advice, life advice, you know, detrimental, sure pond advice? Uh, the final word is yours, my man. Honestly, I would, I would just, I would encourage any young listener or even old listener um, that if you're thinking about starting a company, don't, <laughs> don't do it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, that you, that you, if you're genuinely interested in, you have to really soul search a little bit yeah. and make sure that this is truly something that you want. But if it is something that you truly want, then you, the best time to start is, is now. You have mm -hmm. to start as early as possible because the later that you go or the longer that you wait, the less opportunity that you have and the more risk that you intake. Got it. That's fair. David, thanks so much for that final word. And thanks for taking the time to go on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Zamarian. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube and subscribe.